The huge span of history recorded in Genesis' first 11 chapters has slowed down and zoomed in on one family, Abraham and, and his descendants. And as we've already seen, this family is far from a model of peace and harmony in the home. If you've been reading Genesis, you're aware of all manner of dysfunction and brokenness. And we've begun to look at the story of Joseph in the last 14 chapters of the book of Genesis, and the dysfunction just gets worse and worse. Favoritism, envy, violence, and immorality have virtually filled the pages of these stories so far. And given the moral and spiritual chaos that's often evident in these people's lives, a reader of Genesis might reasonably ask, is this the family God is going to use to establish his kingdom and become a fountainhead of blessing to all the nations of the earth? It seems a little bit far-fetched based on what we're seeing from these folks. Because remember, the narrative thread woven through these stories of these generations is a promise God made to Abraham all the way back in chapter 12. And that he's reiterated again to Abraham's son Isaac and then to his grandson Jacob. Here's uh, from Genesis 12. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And then later he he stretches that out, expands on that to say that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So there are grand global purposes in the mind of God for Abraham and his descendants. But as Pastor Liam Gallagher says, before God could give this family a kingdom, he first had to rescue them from themselves. And that's just the work that God is up to in the story of Joseph's life that we've begun studying together and will be for the next few months. In today's passage, the story really starts to get interesting. So turn to Genesis chapter 37 in your copy of the Bible. If you're using those uh, hardcover ESV Bibles in the chairs around you, I think it's on page 31. At least the beginning of chapter 37 is on 31. We'll continue the story. Now, just a little bit of setting context here. Last week, we met 17-year-old Joseph, the second youngest of Jacob's 12 sons, and clearly his favorite. His status as the preferred son among the 12 is evidenced by the special coat that his father gave him as a gift. We're not sure if it's a colorful coat or if it's a coat with long sleeves. The Hebrew phrase behind that uh, is, is unusual. But at any rate, it was a special gift signifying Joseph's special status. And his, his status as the preferred son is evidenced by the special role that his father had given him within the family. He, we've already seen him in this role of sort of overseeing and reporting on his brothers as they shepherded Jacob's flocks out in the pastures. So the brothers are out doing the work, and Joseph is sort of the project manager, just overseeing and reporting back to uh, their father about how things are going. And if Joseph's elite status among his brothers wasn't enough on its own to create trouble, God gave Joseph a couple of really intriguing dreams that strongly suggest that he might have a significant role to play 
in the fulfillment of the promises of a kingdom embedded within God's covenant with Abraham. And Joseph's jealous brothers do not like that, Sam I am. And so we continue our story in verse 12. We're going to do just a couple of verses at a time and walk through the rest of this chapter. So look with me at Genesis chapter 7, excuse me, 37, verse 12. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. We see immediately that Joseph isn't working with his brothers, right? The brothers are off doing the work of shepherding, and Joseph is at home, as one commentator suggested, perhaps with his feet up on the couch, enjoying his uh, elite status in the family. But he's given another reconnaissance mission. His father sends him out to the pastures. Go and find them and see what they're up to and bring me word. Now, I want you to note that the mention of the, the, the name Shechem, where the brothers had gone to pasture, should raise an eyebrow for anyone who's read Genesis up to this point. In chapter 34, which was about two years prior to this, in a perhaps noble but exaggerated effort to protect their sister's honor, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, massacred all the men who lived in the town of Shechem, an act which drew Jacob's disapproval in chapter 34, verse 30, as he says to them, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. If they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. So Jacob's sons have already been causing some trouble and specifically some violent uprising in the land of Shechem. And so perhaps Jacob is worried that his sons have ventured so close to the site of their earlier violent outburst. And so he sends Joseph to find out if they're okay. Let's see what happens. Verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now these are a quiet couple of verses. Easily overlooked. We don't know who this guy is. Joseph's just wandering around looking, and a stranger shows up and points him in a direction. But remember that we're reading this story with a watchful eye for the presence and providence of God on display. Had Joseph not known where to look beyond Shechem, he'd gone to where he thought the brothers were and they weren't there, he probably would have simply turned around uh, with no further incident. He'd gone back and told his dad, I couldn't find him. They said they'd be at Shechem, but they don't seem to be... I'm not sure where they are. But no, Joseph has a position of kingly authority to attain. Joseph needs to make it to Egypt. So Joseph has a caravan to catch. And in order to catch it, he has to get to Dothan, where his brothers have gone with the, with the, the flocks, looking for greener pastures. And so with that in mind... The stranger who finds Joseph wandering in the fields is no mere straggler. He is God's provision 
of guidance. It's, a, it's not just a chance encounter and Joseph happened upon some good information. It's a divine appointment. God is leading Joseph to where his brothers are so that the wheels of the story can be set in motion. Let me just say this to you before we move on with the story. Don't underestimate God's intentional direction in your own life. You may not even be aware in the moment of how the Lord is guiding you down the path that he's marked out for your life. It might be a chance encounter, a casual conversation, one you've already forgotten about and couldn't name it if you wanted to. But our God is always on the job, always guiding and providing. And he's always aware both of where you are and of where he needs you to be. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 says this on the doctrine of providence. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created." God is everywhere in the story of Joseph if we're looking, if we have in mind this providence whereby God directs and upholds and governs all creatures and all things from the greatest even to the least. And don't forget, his eye is on you too. Let's continue the story down in verse 18. So Joseph has now gone to Dothan and found them there, we're told in verse 17. So here's, here's how verse 18 starts. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. The depth of hatred and jealousy in the hearts of Joseph's brothers is revealed starkly in verse 18. When they, upon seeing Joseph approaching, they hatch a plot to murder him. Here comes this dreamer. You can practically hear the snarl in their voices, the sarcastic disdain they have for their little brother. Now, perhaps you've noticed certain similarities here with stories you've read elsewhere in Genesis. For one thing, animosity among brothers appears to be something of a family tradition. Traveling just one generation up the tree to their father, Jacob, and his twin brother, Esau. Jacob had his own indiscretions in early life as he deceived Esau and sort of stole the blessing from their father. And Esau, we're told, hated him and sought to kill him. He calmed down. He didn't kill him, but he wanted to for a while. Jacob's own father, Isaac, was himself the victim of mocking and derision from his brother Ishmael, who was eventually sent away from the family entirely. But the most striking comparison, I think, is with the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. You see, God accepted the offering of Abel 
and rejected that of the elder brother Cain. And Cain, in response to that, was eaten up by jealousy and rage. And so we're told in Genesis 4, when they were, in, they were alone in the field together, Cain rose up against his brother and struck him dead. So now here's Joseph, alone in a field with his jealous and vengeful brothers who are plotting his demise. And things may have turned out precisely the same for Joseph as they did for Abel, were it not for, for a word of support from an unexpected source. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. That last bit is sort of commentary from the author. He didn't say that to them. What he said was, let's just leave him here. But what he was thinking was, I'll come back later and get him, and I can take him back home and restore him to his father. Now, Reuben is the oldest of Jacob's sons, and for the first time seems to take some responsibility, the kind of responsibility you might expect the eldest to take. No, this is on me. Let me lead. Let me guide. And so he convinces his brother not to kill Joseph themselves, but to simply leave him to die in one of the pits. Much more civilized, you see, to do it that way. His intention, apparently, is to come back later without his brother's knowledge and get Joseph out of the pit and take him back home. And so he's noble enough to want to save Joseph from them, but he's not courageous enough to directly confront or challenge his brothers. And so his plan is to sort of con them. What if we just leave him here? And then I'll secretly come back later and get him out of the pit and all this thing, this will be over. And we'll see in a minute that Reuben's plan doesn't exactly work out like he's hoping, but credit where it's due. Moses, the author of this book, credits him in verse 21 with rescuing Joseph out of their hands. And that is almost certainly true. Had he not intervened, Joseph would surely have been killed by these dangerous men. At any rate, the brothers listen to Reuben, and when Joseph approaches, they take immediate action. Let's look at verses 23 through the start of 25. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. That's one of my favorite details in this story. When Joseph finally arrives, they greet him with violence. They seize him. They strip off his special robe. They're going to need that in a minute. And they throw him into a pit. Now, the, this pit that they throw him in is a deep cistern hewn out of rock for the storing of water. The pit is currently dry. We're told there was no water in it. But it would be impossible to climb out of this pit. So the plan is for Joseph to be alternately scored. Have you ever been guilty? I once heard a pastor, a guy named Andy Johnson, say, sometimes the only distance between the anger in our hearts and the physical act of murder is opportunity. If I knew, I would not be caught. Knew, I would suffer no consequences. Could the bitterness in my heart toward another person? If you knew that you would not be caught, 
if you knew that you would not experience any consequences whatsoever, could the anger and bitterness that you feel in your heart toward another person lead you to violate the sixth commandment? Perhaps we should not be too quick to imagine ourselves above the kind of wickedness displayed by the sons of Jacob in this passage. We are all indeed sons of Jacob in desperate need of the saving mercy of Jacob's God. While they're eating, they see some unexpected visitors approaching. And another one of the brothers pipes up with an idea. Let's take a look. Verse 25. They sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. Judah here, named for the first time in this narrative, becomes a prominent figure in the story in a few ways, that we'll, which we'll see as we go on. And we'll actually get to spend some more quality time with Judah in our passage next week. But our attention is drawn to him here for the first time. And I want you to make note of what we see. He's an opportunist. A chance to be rid of the dreamer and to earn some cash at the same time. Two birds, one stone. He's perhaps a bit of a manipulator. All of this, let's not put our hand against him. He's our own flesh. That sounds very noble. And he's suddenly concerned about family unity while he's selling his brother instead of killing him outright. Maybe he really thinks this. Maybe he has a pang of conscience or something, but more likely, it seems, it's a line to persuade his brothers to accept his idea. What does Judah earn for this sale? 20 pieces of silver, which, by the way, is not that much money. In the words of Tim Rice from the Broadway musical, Oh, now, brothers, how low can you stoop? You make a sordid group. Hey, how low can you stoop? Downward and downward they go. So now Joseph is in the hands of Midianite Ishmaelite traders. Those terms are used interchangeably for this group of people. Maybe there's some intermarriage or something. And they're on their way to Egypt. Something else I want you to notice. They're carrying gum, balm, and myrrh. What are these? Embalming spices. You see, Egyptians are very concerned with preserving the bodies of the dead. Ever heard of a mummy? That's where it comes from. And these Midianite traders aim to capitalize on that morbid interest by selling some materials for embalming. We're on our way to Egypt with embalming spices and materials to sell them. Notice, they're carrying these embalming spices down to Egypt, verse 25. Yes, that's an accurate geographical detail, as in to the south. But as a literary device, don't miss the intentional irony. They draw Joseph up from the pit and then send him down to Egypt with the burial spices. 
Notice also, Egypt will be a really significant stop for Abraham's family on the way to becoming a great nation. If you've ever wondered how the people of Israel ended up there, look no further. This is where it starts. And notice finally, Joseph is carried away from his home, away from his brothers, away from his father. He's in chains, essentially a piece of property worth only 20 pieces of silver at that. But don't forget, he's definitely not dead. Let's see what will become of his dreams indeed. The brothers perhaps speak better than they knew. Well, Reuben apparently has stepped away for a while and missed all the exciting developments with the Midianite traders. Hey, Reuben, great news. We got rid of Joseph and we earned enough money to buy a slushie on the way home. Let's see how Reuben responds. Look at verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned excuse me, to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Not our brother's robe, your son's robe. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So Reuben panics when he finds that Joseph is gone, probably for selfish reasons. What he says is, I, where shall I go? Right? I'm responsible Rather than concern for his father's loss, oh no, what's going to become of our dad when we tell him? And certainly not out of concern for their sin against God. But Reuben's panic snaps them out of a stupor of sorts, and they, they realize that they need a cover story. Now, they mention this story back in verse 20. We'll say that an animal devoured him. But now they get creative, and they add a prop. Verse 31, they slaughter a goat and dip Joseph's robe in its blood. Verse 32, they bring the blood-soaked robe to their father, Jacob. Identify this as your son's robe. So impersonal. Verse 33, Jacob identifies it as Joseph's coat and concludes, as his sons hoped he would, that Joseph has been devoured by a fierce animal. Perhaps that's more true than he knows, though he hasn't guessed yet that the fierce animal is Joseph's own brothers. Jacob tears his robe in grief. And he mourns for many days, probably, honestly, about 20 years. But catch this detail, further illustrating the, the callous cruelty of Jacob's sons. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him. You did this. This was your hand against Joseph. Your plot at first to kill him, and then moderating it to leave him there to die, and then moderating it again to sell him as a slave in Egypt. And you have the audacity to comfort 
your father? To maintain the fraud of Joseph's death rather than confess the truth to their grieving father. It is dark and deep. He refuses to be comforted. He says, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Sheol is the name of the the place of the dead, essentially the grave. I will go to my grave mourning. A little bit of foreshadowing here. Jacob will one day go down to his son in the, the land of graves, but not in the way he expects. The narrator leaves Jacob in his grief to be comforted by his fierce animal sons and gives us one last narrative detail about Joseph's journey before closing out the chapter. Look at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. An official in Pharaoh's court. What an interesting place to wind up. I wonder what this invisible God might be up to. Of course, God's work of providence is easier to see in hindsight, isn't it? Joseph couldn't see what might come next, and I expect it was extremely hard to imagine it could possibly be good news. So in the midst of our own pits of dark despair, of our own journeys toward the land of graves, we need to remind one another of the spotless track record of our faithful God, that we might take comfort and hope in the midst even of our darkest hours. Consider the comfort of this old hymn by William Cooper, an English hymn writer in the 17th century. O fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. I wonder, as we read through Joseph's experience in Genesis 37, if you can see in this story echoes of another beloved son. His father sent him to his brothers. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He was despised and rejected by men. Instead of being greeted with the honor and dignity called for by his special status, he was betrayed by one of his 12 closest friends, sold to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. He was beaten. He was stripped of his robe. He was hanged on a cross and finally lowered into a rocky pit. He went into that pit for you and me. Jesus Christ entered the place of the dead, the land of graves, so that he might taste death for everyone, as we're told in the book of Hebrews, and deliver us from the one who has the power of death. And while we haven't yet begun to see Joseph's rise in Genesis, Jesus didn't remain in the place of the dead, but was raised to victorious life and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he reigns even now over his people in the church, from which one day 
he will return in power and glory to judge the living and the dead and to carry us home forever. In Christ, you can rest assured the dark pit of your suffering is by no means the end of the story. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace poured out on us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace of your word. Alive by your spirit and at work within us even now, we pray that we would come to believe and to respond in faith and obedience to all that you say to us. We thank you for your watchful providential eye over our lives, over the the affairs of this world. And we ask you to give us faith to trust you when things look crazy, when life looks like we're in a pit with no way out. Help us to believe that your good, redemptive, sovereign purposes will be accomplished. And give us peace to follow you, to keep our eyes on you in the meantime. If there's anyone in the room today who has never repented of their sins and trusted upon Christ, we pray that even now you would draw those hearts to you. Bring them to yourself. Grant them new and eternal life. Through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen.